Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I trust you're having a great holiday season? I am. And yourself? Not bad. I do have a question for you, though. We live in a society right now where the separation of church and state is very strictly enforced. And yet I see uh, I see basically a, 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 a representation of the Ten Commandments right there on the, the very building that houses the Supreme Court. And so my question is, are those Ten Commandments actually a part of our system of law? Well, they certainly are. In fact, one thing that we often do, not so much at Christmas, but at Easter time, is we watch the Ten Commandments. You know, that 1956 epic film, The Ten Commandments, and it shows us a number of things, it reveals, and this is, I think, unmistakably and unforgettably edged in everybody's mind, that Moses looked a great deal like Charlton Heston. I don't think anybody could quite get that out of their minds yet. There is a more recent version of this that is not nearly as good. And anyway, what a lot of people don't know is that at the beginning of this movie, in the uncut original version that most people don't see today, that Cecil B. DeMille actually steps out on the stage in the beginning of the movie wearing a business suit. And here's what he says. Ladies and gentlemen, young and old, this may seem an unusual procedure, but we have an unusual subject. The birth of freedom. The story of Moses. The theme of this picture is whether men ought to be ruled by God's laws or whether they are to be ruled by the whims of a dictator like Ramesses. Are men the property of the state? Or are they free souls under God? This same battle continues throughout the world today. Now, a lot of people, probably including myself, back in 1956, I would have been about 11 at that time, would wonder, sure, the Ten Commandments, that's from the Bible, and that's the basis for righteous living, and certainly the Ten Commandments ought to be taught in our churches. But what do they have to do with freedom? It had almost seemed the Ten Commandments are restraining us. They're the opposite of freedom. They're telling us what we can't do. Freedom tells us what we can do. But notice what he says is that, are we the property of the state? Or are we free souls under God? Are, to be, are we to be ruled by God's laws or by the whims of a dictator? The law of God restrains the law of man. I believe it was Chesterton who once said that, we will either be ruled by the Ten Commandments of God, or we will be ruled by the Ten Thousand Commandments of Man. And we all know that the commandments of man have a way of proliferating, and that every new version of the code gets longer and bigger and has more and more laws restricting our freedom. The Ten Commandments restrain the power of government as well as being a basis for giving us rights. Rights under the Ten Commandments? I must be confusing that. The Ten Commandments versus the Bill of Rights. 
No, because the Ten Commandments, with their negative prohibitions, also imply positive rights. And we're going to see these as we go through these Ten Commandments in the next ten weeks, one by one. For example, thou shalt not kill. That conveys a right to life. Thou shalt not steal. That conveys a right to property. Basic negative commands of Scripture convey positive rights to us. And anyway, so yes, the Ten Commandments are a basis for American freedom. But not too long ago, the Alabama legislature passed a law. It was actually a constitutional amendment, and it was approved by the Alabama voters, so it's part of the Alabama Constitution, that begins by saying that every person shall be at liberty to worship God according to the dictates of his or her own conscience. No person shall be compelled to attend or, against his or her consent, contribute to the erection or support of any place of religious worship or to pay tithes, taxes, or other or support other places of religious worship or other rates for the support of any minister of the gospel, property belonging to the state may be used to display the Ten Commandments and the right of a public school and public body to display the Ten Commandments on property owned or administered by a public school or public body in this state is not restrained or abridged. Brian, I'm going to have to take a minute to go out and get the minute signed. The Alabama Constitutional Amendment continues by saying that the Ten Commandments shall be displayed in a manner that complies with constitutional requirements, including but not limited to being intermingled with historical or educational items or both in a larger display within or on property owned or administered by a public school or public body. Now, civil liberties groups so-called objected to this and argued that this was going to be an establishment of religion. It was going to get Alabama into all sorts of lawsuits, none of which have happened yet. But I think that this amendment was defensible, and I argued during the campaign for its adoption that it was defensible for several reasons. One is that the Ten Commandments do not belong to any specific religion. I recall one time when I was asked by a reporter at a Ten Commandments display how do you think a Jew would feel seeing this? I just responded, why don't you ask Moses? Ten Commandments are obviously originally a Hebrew document, and they are accepted by Christians of all denominations, and accepted by Islam and other religions as well. And in fact, Martin Luther made the statement the Decalogue, that is, the Ten Commandments, is not of Moses, nor did God give it to him first. On the contrary, the Decalogue belongs to the whole world. It was written and engraved in the minds of all human beings from the beginning of the world. What Moses is saying, not he's certainly not denying that God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. Brother, what he's saying is that they are an expression of the natural law that is written on the hearts of all men, according to Romans chapter 2. 
And accordingly, they are not exclusively religious because they have civil contexts, they have criminal contexts, and they have social and religious contexts. There was a Supreme Court case that we had two interesting cases, one from McCrary County, Kentucky, in which by a 5-4 vote, the Supreme Court struck down a Ten Commandments display, and on the same day, in a 5-4 vote, in the case of Van Orden versus Perry, the Supreme Court upheld a Ten Commandments display on the lawn of the Texas Capitol. The difference was Justice Breyer. Justice Breyer said one of these is constitutional and the other is not. And he said that in the Kentucky display, it was in such a way that it stood by itself as an endorsement of the Christian religion. Whereas in the Texas display, it was there on the lawn, along with a lot of other displays on the lawn, and therefore did not imply that the state of Texas was endorsing the Ten Commandments or whatever religion the Ten Commandments might possibly exemplify. Chief Justice Rehnquist, in the Van Orden versus Perry decision, the Texas one in which the court upheld the Ten Commandments, said, of course, the Ten Commandments are religious, but Moses was a lawgiver as well as a religious leader. And the Ten Commandments have an undeniable historical meaning. Justice Breyer, the justice who was the swing vote there, the one that upheld the display in Texas and struck down the display in Kentucky, he wrote in his concurring opinion, in certain contexts, a display of the tables of the Ten Commandments can convey not simply a religious message, but also a secular moral message about proper standards of social conduct. And in some contexts, a display of the tablets can also convey an historical message about historical relation between those standards and the law, a fact that helps to explain the display of those tablets in dozens of courthouses throughout the nation, including the Supreme Court of the United States. We're going to see more about this Ten Commandments issue and whether they can be displayed and how they are the foundation of law after this break. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. The Colonel is walking us through the Ten Commandments and particularly their place in America's public life. Well, let's continue. There was another Supreme Court, I'm sorry, federal court decision. This one came out of a federal court in Utah in 1995. Judge in that case, the case was Oliverson versus West Valley City. Utah, involving a Ten Commandments display in this city, this judge said the codes are often referred to for their religious importance. However, in fact, in Hebraic history, they were in part legal codes governing the social conduct of the societies to which they apply. The biblical books are ancient legal codes and histories. It would be wrong to assume the Hebraic references are merely religious commands. 
the radical separations in this country, those that would say that you can't even think about God if you're walking on a public sidewalk, the radical separationists assume that everything must be 100% religious or 100% secular. And in fact, there is a great deal of overlap between these. And anyway, another interesting point is that the amendment in Alabama did not prohibit other displays. In other words, if somebody wants to put up a display of some sayings from the Quran or from the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishads or other source, nothing prohibits this from being done. However, they are not on an equal footing. I say that because the Analects of Confucius or the laws of Manu or the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran have not influenced Western law or American law in the way that the Ten Commandments have. And that's the basic point I'm making here, is that the Ten Commandments deserve a place in American public life and not just a place. They deserve a very special place because they represent American law and they represent American political philosophy. There are basic values that we hold in American law. And that's true of Western law in general. But these values find their source in the Ten Commandments. For example, one of these values would be respect for life. And that's found in the command, thou shalt not kill. Likewise, in the homicide laws of all states, as well as federal, and in most other countries as well. The second basic value would be respect for family. And this is found in the command, honor thy father and mother. Likewise, in the command, thou shalt not commit adultery. And until recently, adultery was illegal in all 50 states. And also in the laws of the various jurisdictions that recognize the family as the basic unit of society. Likewise, the Supreme Court's decision in Pierce versus Society of Sisters that upheld the right of parents to send their children to religious schools, saying the child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who bring him into the world have the right coupled with the high duty to prepare him for future obligation. Another is respect for property. We find this in the command, thou shalt not steal. And you might possibly argue, well, this just means you can't steal from the commune, can't steal from the state. It doesn't imply a right to private property. But when you go to the last command, thou shalt not covet, where you see the explanation of that, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ox or his ass or anything that is thy neighbor's. Clearly here, the command is recognizing the right to private property. And property rights, of course, are a basic aspect of Western law. Another is respect for truth. And we find that in the command, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, as well as the command, thou shalt not bear false witness. The latter, of course, thou shalt not bear false witness, is really the basis of civilization. How can you have meaningful communication unless you assume that 
Most people tell the truth most of the time. Why have me on the air if I'm just as likely to lie as tell the truth? Why bother asking directions how to go somewhere? How do I get to a certain address if I assume that people are just as likely to lie as tell the truth? The assumption that people tell the truth most of the time is the basis of communication. Communication becomes impossible without it. But also the command, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. This command prohibits not only cussing, blasphemy, it also prohibits perjury. And anyway, it's the basis of a legal system. We can't have a properly functioning legal system unless we have a means of oaths to make sure that people tell the truth under under oath when they're testifying in court. Without that, judges and juries are not able to arrive at the truth and therefore not able to do justice. And then another value, and that is respect for God. Now, does that seem like a value of American government? Well, I would argue that it certainly is, because our Declaration of Independence, which establishes our nation, you know, the Constitution establishes the government, the Declaration establishes the nation. And the Declaration begins with a recognition that we are entitled to independence based upon the laws of nature and of nature's God. And goes on to say that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, the only firm basis for equality, and that all men are endowed, not by their government with certain negotiable privileges, but by their creator with certain unalienable rights. In fact, in Zorak versus Clausen, Supreme Court decision back in 1952, Justice Douglas recognized that we are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. In McGowan versus Maryland in 61, Justice Douglas wrote, the institutions of our society are founded on the belief that there is an authority higher than the authority of the state, that there's a moral law which the state is powerless to alter, that the individual possesses rights conferred by the creator, which government must respect. And these views of law and government, these basic values of the respect for life, respect for property, respect for family, respect for truth, and respect for God. These don't come out of Roman law. They don't come out of Greek philosophy. They come from the ancient Hebrews. And it is the basis for American law today. And that being the case, it is entirely appropriate to remember that this is the source of our law. Thomas Jefferson asked the question, and in fact, you find these words emblazoned on the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. He asked, can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God? 
that they are not to be violated, but with his wrath? Yes, indeed. The Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law that they represent are the basis for law in our Western society. And courts have recognized this. In fact, we are going to see after the break how in at least 1,100 cases of record, by that we mean federal courts or state supreme courts, we find that these courts in American history have recognized one or more of the Ten Commandments. We'll see that after the break. Again, we welcome you back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. All right, Colonel, I am ready to hear about these numerous cases that show that the Ten Commandments are somehow not incompatible with our system of laws. Very good. Brian, what we're going to be doing here in the next ten weeks is we're going to go over each of these Ten Commandments and show its relationship to American law. But one in general would be from a West Virginia Supreme Court decision back in 1899. Way back at that time, there was a public official who was fired for having solicited a prostitute. And he argued that under the laws of the state, he could be fired only for a crime that constituted moral turpitude. And the Supreme Court of West Virginia said that prostitution is a crime of moral turpitude and is therefore a basis for firing because it constitutes a violation of the Ten Commandments prohibition of adultery. And here's what the West Virginia Supreme Court said about the Ten Commandments there in 1899. These commandments, which, like a collection of diamonds, bear testimony to their own intrinsic worth, in themselves appeal to us as coming from a superhuman or divine source. And no conscientious or reasonable man has yet been able to find a flaw in them. Absolutely flawless, negative in terms but positive in meaning, they easily stand at the head of our whole moral system. And no nation or people can long continue a happy existence in open violation of them. Again, repeatedly, we see the Ten Commandments cited as further support for a particular proposition of law over 1,100 times, and these are only the cases that I've been able to discover. But more than that, they are the inspiration and model for basic Republican government. Where do we find the roots of the American Republic? Well, many would look to Greece and Rome, and there may be some influence there, but I think there's far more influence as we go to the Hebrews. John Adams, our second president, once wrote, As much as I love, esteem, and admire the Greeks, I believe the Hebrews have done more to civilize the world. Moses did more than all their legislators and philosophers. In fact, there are many who have argued through history, even some of the early church fathers argued that when Plato in his Republic 
spoke about the philosopher king. The ideal philosopher king that he had in mind was one who had lived about a, a thousand years before, that being Moses. Now, one thing we saw is that when the Roman Empire fell and the medieval period began, the Dark Ages, as we call it, dark because in many cases we know very little about it, but we call them the Dark Ages because, as one writer has said, it is the darkness of the womb. It is the period of time in which great ideas are germinating, but many of the Enlightenment philosophers called them the Dark Ages because at this time the light of Greek and Roman philosophy had died out and the world for a thousand years was ruled by the church and religious superstition. But when the Enlightenment came with the Renaissance or the rebirth, which in a sense, both the Enlightenment and the Renaissance have a Christian wing to them. And to some extent, what they are is looking to the Bible rather than simply to church officials as the source of understanding. But there was also a atheistic or at least an anti-Christian wing of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance as well. But I think we need to understand that there were some pretty bad things that came as a result of the Renaissance as well. Yes, the Renaissance did bring a renewed interest in Greek and Roman thought, but one of the ideas of Greek and Roman thought that it brought in was the Roman idea of imperium, meaning the right to rule, that unlike the medieval period, and during the medieval period, we see that Government exists largely by social contracts. That might seem surprising to a lot of people, but that's what the whole feudalism idea was all about, that you have government by a peasant or a serf making a agreement of fealty to a local lord. For example, let's say you have some serf or peasant who... He's tied to his land, he works his land, but he gets to profit from his land. But let's say there's a band of marauders that come out, maybe a band of Viking raiders and so on, that come around harvest time each year and burn his house and beat him up and steal his crops. And he gets sick of that, so he goes to this local lord, a tough guy who lives in a big manor, and says, I need your help. And the Lord says, okay, we'll establish an agreement. You'll be my vassal, I'll be your Lord. This means you will pay me taxes, you will obey my laws, you will serve in my army when I need you. But it also means that when you're attacked, my army will come out and defend you. It also means that when you have a dispute with a neighbor, you can get it resolved in my courts, and so on. And anyway, so this is the vassal-lord relationship that is the basis of feudalism. And then that lord also, he may not be big enough and tough enough to fight off all marauding bands, and so he in turn makes an agreement with a higher lord, a tougher guy with a bigger castle, he'll be his vassal, and he in turn to the king. And so you have this vassal-lord relationship that exists 
by contract or consent. And the idea that government is by social contract comes largely from this. Now, in contrast, when the Renaissance comes in, we start seeing the idea that the king has absolute authority to rule. We see this in the English kings who claimed to rule by divine right, or the French kings like Louis XIV, who allegedly declared l'état c'est moi, or I am the state. He may not have actually used those words, but that expressed his philosophy, and those words are attributed to him. Or Thomas Hobbes and his work, Leviathan, the idea that government needs to have absolute power if it is to govern effectively. Anyway, and then another thing that arises in this period is slavery. And slavery had largely died out after the fall of the Roman Empire in Europe. And instead, we have serfdom, which isn't the ideal situation, but it has a lot of advantages for the serf. I mean, the serf or peasant is in a lot better condition than a slave was. But with the idea of Greek and Roman thought coming back in, along with it comes the, the idea of slavery. And part of this had to do with, <clears throat> with the idea that we need workers. In fact, the plague is a took place. The Black Plague, for example, that some say wiped out over half of Europe and Asia. One of the results of this was the labor shortage. And you have fields lying fallow because there was nobody to work there. And so slaves are brought in, and the idea of slavery is brought in again. So the point I'm making is that the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, not everything that came out of these was good. But many were seeking an alternative to this idea of government absolutism, and they didn't find much of a model for this in Greek and Roman thought. The Greek city-states, most of them were charities. Those that were democracies were unstable and unwieldy and usually very short-lived. <clears throat> but in contrast to that, many looked a thousand years earlier to the Hebrew law. One of these to do so was Flavius Josephus, the author of Antiquities of the Jews, who suggested to Europeans that the Israelite society could be regarded as a politia, that is a political constitution, that Moses could be understood as its lawgiver. Another would be Patrick. Remember St. Patrick of Ireland, although he was originally British, but St. Patrick brought a legal code to Ireland, the census more. That was basically the common law that was made in touch with the law of the Bible and corrected by the law of the Bible. And this governed Ireland for about 1,200 years. Alfred the Great, when he drafted the first legal code, written legal code to govern all England in 890 AD, he began it with a recitation of the Ten Commandments. So we're seeing the Ten Commandments as being a basis for law in the face of what would otherwise be tyranny. And we'll have more about that as we see how this applies in America after we take this break. And we welcome you back to our final segment today of Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo. 
as we are learning about some of the background and influence of the Ten Commandments on our own systems of law. Well, let's look at a few more from Europe, and then let's go to America. We find Maimonides, the rabbi Moses ben Maimon, who lives in the 1100s, who takes the Old Testament commercial law and codifies it into a legal document, and it becomes pretty much the commercial law for Europe. The reason for this being that the Pope and the Catholic Church prohibited all interest as being usury. So if you wanted to borrow money, you'd have to go down to the Jewish sector to borrow money, and so their law became the law of the the commercial law of Europe. Carlos Sigonius, writing his work, The Hebrew Republic, 1524 to 1584 A.D., writes a work that enjoys wide circulation and influences later writers. Likewise, Petrus Cuneus, writing in the early 1600s, writes a work, De Republica Hebraeum, that is the Hebrew Republic, which is called the most powerful statement of Republican theory in the early years of the Dutch Republic. He describes Moses as being the great lawgiver, but cites others as well. And Joseph Johannes Althusius, also writing the early 1600s, is a professor of law, theology, and philosophy. And his classic work, Politica, and is offered as a legal and theological justification for the Dutch secession from Spain, talks about federalism, that is, a system of decentralized government based on scripture. And in the preface to Politica, he says, the precepts of the Decalogue are included to the extent they include and infuse a vital spirit into the association and symbiotic life that we seek, and that they prescribe and constitute a way rule, guiding star, and boundary for human society. Others that we could cite would be Hugo Grotius, and he is often called the father of international law, his work, The Rights of War and Peace, likewise his work, The Truth of the Christian Religion, which has been called the first Protestant work of Christian apologetics. Likewise, he bases his work on what he calls the Law of Moses, and Talk about John Selden, an English jurist during the same period of time, who is described by John Milton as the chief of learned men reputed in this land, but noted primarily as a Hebrew scholar, Sir William Blackstone and many others. But when we look to the foundations of Hebrew law, then we see Blackstone, when Blackstone says that there are three categories of law. One of them is the revealed law, which he says is found only in the Holy Scriptures. Another, he says, is the law of nature, which he says is the will of God, dictated by God himself, but discoverable by human reason. And the third is human or municipal law. But he says human or municipal law is valid only to the extent that it is consistent with this higher law of God. No human law should be suffered to contradict these, he says. And modern scholars today are starting to rediscover this Hebrew foundation. Joshua Berman, who is a senior lecturer at 
Nahar Alon University in Israel, wrote an interesting book in 2008 titled Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought. And he says that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is the world's, the world's first model of society in which politics and economics embrace egalitarian ideals. He says, the idea, for example, that we have in the Declaration, all men are created equal. Berman says about that, if there was one truth the ancients held to be self-evident, it was that all men were not created equal. In other words, in the ancient world, the idea that people are different in ability, different in wealth, different in stature, different in privilege, that was as self-evident as it could possibly be. But he says, if we mean today that, in fact, they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, then it is because we have inherited, as part of our cultural heritage, notions of equality that were deeply entrenched in the ancient passages of the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. He goes on to say, central to Republican schemes, and Deuteronomy's is no exception, is the notion of mixed government, and a degree of separation of powers. Deuteronomy, therefore, he says, illustrates notions of separation of powers that have usually been considered quite recent. You consider the separation of powers there, that you have, first of all, a chief judge for 400 years, then you have a king, but you also have the ruling council of 70 elders that is called by Moses, but later becomes known as the Sanhedrin, you also have the Congregation of Israel, which, as we looked at that congregation, that seems to be like a House of Commons or a House of Representatives, composed of elders of the 12 tribes. Then you have the 12 tribes, you have a central government, but under it you have the 12 tribes and their separate governments. But also you have a separation of church and state, in a sense. You have the kings coming out of the tribe of Judah, and then you have the religious authority, the priests, coming out of the tribe of Levi. And then you have another order, the prophets, the Nabaim, and the prophets are not necessarily Levites, and they normally support the priests, but sometimes they are a check on the power of the priests when the priests abuse their power. So this whole system of separation of powers, checks and balances, and the like, we find this in the ancient Hebrew Republic. And we can go on to look to Eric Nelson. Now, Eric Nelson is a professor of government at Harvard, and he's recently written a groundbreaking book titled The Hebrew Republic, Jewish Sources, and the Transformation of European Political Thought, published by Harvard University Press and. 2010, he surveys the influence of Hebrew thought upon European political thought. He traces the Hebrew model from Maimonides, who we've already talked about, to the works of Ainsworth, of Lightfoot, of Coleman, of Spencer, Selden, we've already mentioned, Bowden and Grotius, and Spinoza, Hobbes, Harrington, many others, and he explains that earlier jurists saw good and, as and bad aspects in monarchy, 
likewise in oligarchy and then in democracy. But he says, in the middle of the 17th century, however, we find Republican authors making new and revolutionary arguments. They now begin to claim that monarchy per se is an illicit constitutional form and that all legitimate constitutions are Republican. He states further, this rupture was provoked by the Protestant reception of a radical tradition of rabbinic biblical exegesis, which understood the Israelite request for a king in 1 Samuel as an instance of the sin of idolatry. This embrace of Republican exclusivism marks a crucial turning point in the history of European political thought. And he concludes, for roughly 100 years from the time of Bertram until the time of Spinoza, European Protestants made the Hebrew Bible the measure of their politics. They believed that the same God who thundered from Sinai and who later sent his son into the world had revealed to Israel the form of a perfect republic. They labored with the help of their rabbinic authorities to interpret his design and attempted in their own societies to replicate it as closely as possible. In the process, they made crucial contributions to the political thought of the modern world, Republican exclusivism, redistribution, and toleration have all been defended on different grounds in the intervening centuries. But in the beginning, all were authorized by the divine will made manifest in the constitution of the Hebrew Republic. You mentioned at the beginning that when we look to the Supreme Court, we see the Ten Commandments. On the outside, they're facing one direction. You see on the near the roof of the Supreme Court, you see a sculpture, Bas Relief, I guess is a better term, of Moses, as he is in the center holding these two documents, the Ten Commandments. On his right is Solon facing him, representing Western law. On his left, representing Eastern law, is Confucius and holding his analects. And again, we see here that Moses and the Hebrew law is the center. And let's not forget, that is the basis of American law, as we'll see in the weeks to come.